Thank you for joining the Once Changing the World, which is India's first Future Tech Meets Sustainability podcast. And today I'm delighted and honored to have with me Mr. Raj Samani, who's the Chief Scientist Officer at Rapid7. He was the ex-chief scientist at McAfee and he has assisted multiple law enforcement agencies in cybercrime cases and is a special advisor to the Europol's European Cybercrime Center. Mr. Samani has been recognized for his contributions to the computer security industry through numerous awards including the Info Security Europe Hall of Fame, Peter Zaw Award and Intel Achievement Award. Among others, he is the co-author of the book Applied Cybersecurity and the Smart Grid and the CSA Guide to Cloud Computing. So Mr. Samani, really appreciate you taking time and being part of a humble podcast. Uh, this is something which I kind of you know pulled off the net. Why don't we start with a brief introduction, your background and you know, how you've been invested in the cybersecurity industry? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. You know, people say, oh, well, you're in security. And there's a misconception that that is almost a separate discipline to those that are technologists. But the reality is, is that I, I'm a technologist first and foremost. Like everybody else, I look to kind of introduce new technologies into my life or into my home with a view to making things and life easier. The, the difference I think is I try to understand the misuse of my data. I try to understand how my data is protected and I look to ensure that not only for my own life, but I help articulate that for people that I work for, people that I work with, effectively helping to try to shape a society in which we can continue this digital adoption, but done so in a way that really doesn't endanger our future. And you know, I know before we started recording, we started to discuss things such as elections and we started to discuss things such as these huge data breaches. But that to me is just an example of how if you if you allow if you allow the adoption of technology to continue unabated without any consideration of effectively data about any consideration of what that data can do and who it can be who it can access it then i think we're going to live in a world in which we as human beings are just commoditized and the only thing that people are interested in is information about us and to me that's to me, that's not a world that I want my children to grow up in. So that's kind of my 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 background and really kind of my my beliefs. I, I think. Right. Uh, you mentioned how today we are we we've been pushed into the digital world, and uh, it, it wouldn't be wrong to say that in the next few decades, almost all of the companies, regular traditional uh, companies, are going to be tech companies. And in this world, I think data is going to play such a huge, huge role. I mean, you know, today we we building technologies, you know, such as artificial intelligence, and, and they are very data hungry. You know, they're dependent upon data. So we are harvesting data, we are manipulating data. You spoke about how we are misusing data and how data needs to be protected. But where do we stand in the world, you know, in this world where everybody is talking about the technologies and, and in all fairness, I think almost all of these technologies are akin to magic because in the next few decades, the 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 kind of benefits it's going to, uh, you know, open up for consumers as well as enterprise is going to be, it, it's pretty much unfathomable at this point in time, you know, right from your augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, your IoT with sensorizing the entire world, artificial intelligence, 5G, but all of this kind of requires data. And so far, like you rightfully pointed up in, in the beginning of the conversation that... 
most of the organizations, including nations, are harvesting our data, manipulating us in ways which we, we don't even understand. So, so, you know, as someone who's an expert in the space, first of all, I mean, please educate us. I mean, what is the current, uh, you know, way where the, the data is being used of us, the citizens and everyone? And what is the, what does the future hold? Well, so ultimately, we don't know. And we've allowed this scenario to happen. And look, let me give you an example. So obviously, you have a smartphone, right, Eddie? And, and how many apps do you roughly have on that smartphone? Can you tell me what data one of those apps collects? Can you tell me the permissions it has on your phone? Can you tell me where it sends that data, who it shares that data with, what they do with that data? Of course, we don't know that. And so we've almost allowed the fox into the hen house because we wanted to have the flashlight app on our device. Okay, let's forget the fact that we have a torch on our device, but we wanted an app to do that. But we've done so in a way that we've almost kind of blindly allowed ourselves the these these organizations access into our very lives and we forgot to ask the question say well are you going to behave when you're here and of course the benefit for these companies is is that their valuations are based upon the amount of data they collect if you think about the most valuable companies in the world they aren't the traditional companies that you would expect selling physical goods. Of course, Apple is probably an exclude, you know, probably, probably, you know, not the best example of that. But you, you look at companies like, for example, like Facebook or YouTube or, you know, Instagram or Snapchat. I mean, these companies don't really sell a physical product. And so I'd say that, you know, the world that you've described in which it is our data that is the most precious commodity. And I think it was said, you know, data is the new oil. Well, that's been happening for over a decade now. And the most valuable companies out there are the ones that actually have the most data. And, you know, I remember I was um, I was on CNBC. I was co-anchoring it actually with Louisa Bushman. And, you know, we actually got to discuss this on air. And, and one of the points that I was making was, you know, the traditional kind of approach of valuations of companies based upon turnover and revenue. Yes, that still applies, but equally, the amount of data that it has and the amount of data that it collects and the potential use of that data is, I would say, probably now a more important commodity when it comes to valuations. And that, I think, is the world that we're living in, in which you know, we are being, our information is being harvested. We aren't the ones asking questions like, well, what are you going to do with it? And that, of course, has created a scenario in which you've got these massive data lakes collecting information about us, analyzing that data, and then leveraging that data for their own for their own financial purposes. How does like a consumer enterprise go about protecting oneself, you know, and this onslaught which is coming? Well, it, I mean, it, it's actually really simple. If you don't want, like you've got to ask the question and you've got like, we. so there's been a lot of discussion about regulating the environment. And of course, we've had a lot of data protection regulations that have come in. But ultimately, I do feel that we as the market, and we are the market, we as the market need to say, no, I'm sorry, this is not going to be acceptable. And, <clears throat> you know, I'll, I'll give you a really great case in point. If you remember, there was a, um, there was a kid's toy that used to have a camera inbuilt into a teddy bear. <laughs> and kids could record video and could record voice and send that up to their cloud. And, and when this company got compromised, what happened was, 
the, the, the obviously they got called out for it, but they said, well, actually, they they edited their privacy policy and they said, well, we are not going to be responsible for any information that is accessed by unauthorized third parties. And of course, the regulation, the regulatory authorities said, well, no, this is not good enough. But I remember at the time I, I did a talk at Bletchley Park and I, I tried to do like careers talks at least once a quarter. And I asked parents in the room and I said, well, how many of you still have this toy? And they you know, like 20% of the audience put their hands up. And I said, and how many of you are aware that your information that your children developed and created was stolen by hackers and the company then washed their hands of it and not one of them put their hands up? And I said, so how many of you are now going to continue to buy their products? And they said, well, no, of course not. And, I, you know, and that for me was a really good example of the challenge that we face, which is there is a there is a sea and a wash of news that we simply can't keep keep a hold of. And yet we fail to understand the context and impact of these breaches and how it impacts us. But I think if we knew these things, we would make better decisions. And so that's why I think, you know, podcasts such as yours are so important because it helps educate people on, well, these are the things that I need to be aware of. And ultimately we need to say, look, I'm sorry, but I don't agree with what you're going to do with this information. Therefore, I'm not going to allow you or allow you to harvest information about me. I mean, Right. I think, you know, that's so profound, you know, making people understand, you know, the value of data, because I guess, you know, somehow as consumers, we fail to understand the, the, the data that we are generating. It, it's not like a thought we kind of give into that uh, there is an organization at the back end manipulating your data, what you're looking at, what you're surfing. I think, you know, if there's more awareness in the space, possibly it's going to help. Now, not tell me, I mean, you know, you mentioned about this, you know, toy which had a camera which was a couple of years ago, you know, but then today the entire game is changing. You know, today we have these virtual reality headsets, you know, which, which has got inside outside tracking, right? And, and there are these autonomous cars which are, which, which is, <laughs> you know which is going to come in in the next possibly few years maybe decades who knows but you know they're going to be fitted with cameras all around you know regular cameras lidars 360 cameras iot internet of things you know which is going to be scanning the entire physical world in in, in this world where there's there is more and more data which is going to be harvested i, I know i asked this question to you uh, earlier also it's somebody who's an expert what, what what does how do we deal with some something like this you know with that's a challenging question because look we've seen examples of where this data has been used and manipulated in order in order to be able to influence things as important as like national referendums or things such as elections and you know, even even this week, we've seen a really tremendous story by Raphael Satter and Chris Bing over at Reuters talking about the Indian hacker for hire company and industry and the surveillance industry in terms of compromising and influencing things such as court cases. So the direction that it's going, I think the direction is concerning for sure. And and I and we have to do everything we can to create an environment that affords us transparency, that affords us informed consent. So telling us what you're going to do with the data and then making sure that we're aware of it. I mean, you know, we, we started in a world where we leveraged implicit consent. So we kind of said, well, we're going to take your data and we're going to do what we think is right. Well, clearly that's unacceptable. Then we moved to a world and we said, well, explicit consent is going to be the way forward. And of course, what happened was, we kind of buried this in like 300 pages of terms of service. You know, 
if we can leverage an environment where we have informed consent, whereby actually this is what we're going to do with your data, and then actually demonstrating and giving value back to the consumer. I mean, look, I, I don't mind giving away my data. But what I do is I make sure that I know what you're going to do with it. And then I, I get the maximum value I can commensurate with the data that I provide. That's the only thing we need to do. I and mean, you know, like that's not a difficult thing to ask. Before, if I said, to you, "Well, can I borrow your car and can I take it for a week?" You're going to say, "Well, what are you going to do with it?" You know, like so. So, with a physical asset, we're, we we implement our own due diligence. With a non-physical asset, we don't. And I think, you know, from a security perspective, there's a whole raft of things that we need to start to push and promote and encourage. Things like, you know, for example, we do vulnerability disclosure policies. So, what does a company do when it does get hacked? What does a company do to, you know, like you talk about IoT equipment? How can an organization ensure that you know they are allowing third-party researchers the ability to be able to research into their platforms? And what do they do as a result of it? I mean, the reality is criminals do that today. And we've seen ransomware groups offering bug bounties for zero-day vulnerabilities. So this kind of this kind of new new world and asking companies to say, well, what is your vulnerability disclosure policy? What is your privacy policy? What are you going to, you know? These are important questions that I feel we need to ask in order to try to create an environment which which has a level of of um, like not security and privacy, but really just kind of good standard common practice, and and that should be the way that digital companies operate. I I feel like this should be the norm and not the exception. You have also assisted uh, law enforcement agencies in cybercrime cases, and you have you've also been a special advisor to the European uh, Cybercrime Center in The Hague. So can you share some cybercrime uh, projects that you have played a role in solving? Well, so I, I'll tell you the one that I'm most proud of is No More Ransom. This is uh, an initiative that we put together, I think it was in 2016, and you know, there was only like, I think there was only four partners to begin with 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 law enforcement and one other private sector company and you know we asked amazon web services to host for us and they hosted and they now host the site for us but we, we actually put together this initiative whereby we provide free decryption keys for ransomware so as you know ransomware is somebody gets inside your environment encrypts data and then forces you to pay a ransom in order to be able to unlock your information so we we kind of said well look this is unacceptable we can't live in a world in which hospitals can't provide patient care uh so we put together this initiative and we start you know every time we we take down criminals we all if we get access to their decryption keys we'll make those decryption keys freely available and today i think it's close to a billion dollars that we've prevented in the, going into the hands of criminals because we've been working with law enforcement we've been disrupting ransomware groups We've been seizing their keys and we've been making those keys freely available to anybody. And, you know, we don't ask you for your email address. We don't ask, we don't track your IP. We just simply provide you this free of charge. And for me, like that's, that's something that I am most proud of. I think we won a SC magazine award and, you know, like I've had phone calls and emails from people saying, look, thank you. You know, you saved my business or you know, thank you so much. You know, I now have access to photos from my children or loved ones. And for me, that's, that's, something I'm most proud of. And we don't charge a, a cent for it either. So it's completely free of charge. You don't have to be a customer of ours. Uh, and now we've got over 150 plus partners with pretty much most law enforcement agencies and private sector companies on the planet. 
Right. So you were mentioning that, you know, there's lack of awareness on, you know, that how we, you know, produce so much data and, and we don't really care about it. Can we kind of like, you know, you know, throw some light on how nations, political parties, uh, you know, companies are leveraging our data, manipulating us. So we know that, okay, this is what's been happening, you know, around the world, you know. I can't remember the year. A few years back, we did a joint study with um, a company called Safeguard Cyber. So they're uh, they're a company that do social media analysis, um, specifically around the focus of misinformation. I mean, they do more than that, but that, that was one of the areas that I was most interested in. And we did some work, um, and we actually presented this at the European Commission. It was around the European parliamentary elections. And one of the things that we were able to identify was how the European parliamentary elections are being influenced by third party nations as a vehicle to try to influence and push their own you know, national interests rather than the national interests of the European, the European Union. And and it was it was incredible because what we were able to do was we were able to kind of uncover, you know, different countries had specific misinformation themes, I guess you could call, as a vehicle to try to influence national national voting. And like that to me was tremendous because we actually showed it to the commissioner and you know, we presented this research and it and 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 it kind of drove and it led, you know, I, I guess a movement within within the european commission to help try to track some of these some of these um really some of these themes and you know now we're seeing tremendous efforts from for example the european action service or the european external action service as a vehicle to try to to identify and try to put a stop to really interference from from other nations with regards to our votes and of course you know we can talk about covid how we've seen you know, influencing and misinformation campaigns, driving, driving you know, people's belief that actually this was a conspiracy or it wasn't real, and like it, misinformation is just an everyday part of our lives, and it's so it's so simple to do, and it's multiple nations doing it. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's the world that we live in today, right? Could could you delve a little deeper in that? You know, because you know, with these AI deep fakes happening, you know, how how you know with, with misinformation, how deeply you think you know the world is going to get impacted? It already is. I mean, it genuinely already is. Now we don't know. You see, like we don't know what we don't know. So we don't know if, for example, which elections were influenced. We don't know the national referendum. If, for example, Cambridge Analytica hadn't happened. Would would we you know? Would would the vote have gone this way? So, it's very difficult for us to kind of measure the impact that these influencing campaigns are having. But we have to acknowledge the fact that actually they are occurring, and in many ways they are having an influence on many people. Now, did that influence the vote to such an extent that actually that person wouldn't have got into power, or this country would not have left the European Union? I think that. Is something that we'll never truly know the answer of, right? I mean, you don't, you know, you, you we don't know what we don't know, but 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 we do know that these types of things are occurring, and we do know that it is influencing people, and we do know that it is pushing votes in a direction that is in the interests of a foreign government. That, to me, is is deeply troubling, and of course, you know, we, and that's the macro, and in the micro perspective, we've got, you know, for example examples whereby 
companies are, what was it, criminals were using deep fake videos in order to apply for jobs, if you remember this, this the story just recently. Um, so the deep fake is, is, I think it's just beginning. We're beginning to see the kind of the, the you know, unique cases where deep fakes are being used for criminal purposes. And equally, we're seeing where deep fakes are being used for, for positive purposes. If you remember, I don't want to give it away, but the new Maverick film, the Top Gun film, I believe Val Kilmer's voice was actually a deep fake. So it is part of our everyday life. But of course, trying to quantify the impact is hard when it comes to crime, because we don't really know what would have happened. So that's the challenge that I think we've And of course, that's the age old issue of cybersecurity, which is trying to quantify the benefit or things like return on investment becomes very difficult to do. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Talking about, I mean, you know, AI and defects, you know, uh, deepfakes. I mean, I always try and point it out to to the audience, you know, that you know, technology per se is not bad. You know, it's how you kind of choose it. I mean, that that it uh, depends upon that. You know, whether it becomes uh, good or bad. Now, I mean, I I titled this topic, you know, the role of uh, uh, cybersecurity in the metaverse. You know, so you know, we we are transitioning from Web two O to Web three O, and, and we 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 we. Facebook, a social media company, it rebranded from, you know, being a social media company to a metaverse company. And there's a huge hype, you know, I think everybody jumping onto the bandwagon in Microsoft, maybe, you know, because there's a, a Citibank predicted that, you know, in by 2030, 2035, it's going to be an 8 trillion to three thirteen trillion market opportunity. So in this growingly digitized, you know, world where everything is being digitized, uh, what is the role of cybersecurity over there? Cybersecurity is the foundation of every single thing that we do. It is not a separate discipline. It is not something that is, that, it is the heart of every single thing that we do. Security and privacy needs to be you know, front and center or, or really the foundation of you know, Web 2.0, Web 3.0. Heck, you know, my, my kids will be talking about Web 10.0, right? It has to be the heart of what we do because if you think about the way that we live our lives today, I mean, I, I think it was in like in, in the in the fifties there was a uh, there was an anthropologist that went to to Norway to a fishing village and talked about this construct of a social network, and the social network was based upon physical proximity. So, in other words, your your social network was derived of people that you were physically close to, and you know, in 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 what in fifty years time, in fifty years, we live in a world in which your social networks are barely made up of physical proximity. So for thousands of years, or over a thousand plus years, we used to make friends with people that were close to us. And now that doesn't exist in the space of what, 50 years. Today, I mean, I, I would challenge most people to say, well, you know, the, the, the people that you interact with, the people that you spend time with, except for the people in your house, do you know the people in your street? And the answer for most people is probably no. So, and, and you know, effectively, the point that I'm trying to make here is, is that we technology has fundamentally changed how we connect, how we communicate, how we build communities, how we, how we shop, how we trade, how we, you know, every single facet of our life has been fundamentally turned upon its head. And we've had over a thousand years to put the safeguards in place to protect us from 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 harm whether that's whether that's physical harm or 
somebody talking terribly about, but you know we we we've spent time as a as as a human race to effectively put in those safeguards you know for example we use authentication by physically looking at somebody going yeah well you are ready right so i know it's you but today like i we we don't have those safe same safeguards in place because technology has moved at such a pace you know i didn't you know i don't know if i'm talking to you or if i'm talking to somebody else that's the that's that's a level of trust that I've accepted. Whereas you know, 50, 30 years ago, we physically would have met and I would have authenticated you, would have verified who you are. You know, so like security and privacy needs to be at the heart of what we do because we're really literally defining who we are as human beings and what makes us human, right? Because you, know, you remember uh, anthropologically speaking, you know, the thing that sets us apart from Neanderthals is our, is our communication and our language. Well, how we do that today has changed. So we have to make sure that we put those safeguards in place so that we can continue to grow and evolve as, as a species. These are the important questions we need to ask. And you know, like we're not even we're not even having those discussions. And that's what's troubling to me. I mean, we don't we don't talk about, you know, so we're talking about autonomous driving, but we don't talk about liabilities associated with car crashes. We talk about you know the automation of jobs, but we don't talk about well, where does that leave most people if if they don't have you know, if their job is automated, like, for example, what's going to happen to the next generation of lorry drivers? So these are fundamental questions that I don't think we're having. And for me, that's a concern because we are going to leave people behind. And there are people that are, there are whole sections of societies that are going to feel disenfranchised, disconnected, and quite frankly, aren't going to be economically rewarded. And therefore, the question becomes, well, what happens thereafter? So it is exciting, absolutely exciting, but I think as as all of us as a society need to think about these big questions. And of course, security, privacy needs to be at the heart of all of these discussions. Right, yeah. I think in, you know, excitement to build things, we forget the impact which this technology could have the the bad side you know the good side obviously be excited that oh we're gonna have this autonomous level i mean you know autonomous driving you know these xr glasses you know possibly lenses and automation is gonna you know leave us all i mean <laughs> that it'll possibly automate everything it'll save us so much money and stuff like that but yes like you rightfully pointed out what happens to those live uh, the truck drivers what happens to those those people who whose life depended uh, the, the families you know which, which depended on the jobs you know because if, even simple uh, like uh, these indian banks at one point in time you know i mean uh, for acquiring a loan it, it used to be a process every bank used to uh, employ at least around 100 people you know to kind of you know look at that process you know right from going to the the home of the the, the people who uh, need loan to you know getting the tax papers sending it going through it and stuff like that right now icici bank has a two-minute call you know, with, with, with their IVR as a machine learning agent behind, it kind kind of opens up uh, the Sybil report or, or, of the individual. And in a minute, it kind of understands, okay, whether that person is able to pay the loan or not. So the amount of people which has been displaced because of that is itself huge. So yes, I think we need to have these deeper conversations. But I guess, you know, in an excitement to kind of create a future which is going to be like big, bright and awesome, I, I think we we, we, we losing out on those you know 
you know fundamental questions that we as a society need to actually ask uh, and you know that what are we building and how is it going to really impact us and i hope that uh, we 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 do do that uh, you are the chief scientific officer at rapid 7 would you like to talk about the company and the products and services that you're building over there Yeah no absolutely well so I'm I'm fairly new into the company and um I spent 12 years somewhere else so I think I'm like 3 months in now and um you know I, part of the reason that I came to Rapid7 was it is a company that yes you know has clearly focus on commercial aspects because it is a it is a listed company but what what's really great about Rapid7 is is that it has an understanding of its role within within broader society and it has so many projects that are community focused for example many people will know of metasploit but of course metasploit is 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 managed now by rapid7 it has velociraptor which for ir purposes is literally the tool of choice and again that's provided to the community and things like attacker kb and so it's got so many initiatives that it kind of for me it's an important company because it understands the important role that it plays within shaping our society and that really for me was the most attractive thing that that led me here which was you know like of course i can you know i i can go to to another company that is that is entirely commercially focused but i kind of said well look no here's a company that that yes absolutely doesn't forget its shareholders but more but but for me it's it understands the role and position that it plays within a broader society and and that to me was the exciting part because of course you know i've worked i've worked at the company for 12 years and yes we did community projects but here is a company that kind of has the the it's it's community focused really at the core and the heart of what it does and that for me is 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 what's so exciting about the company and you know it's got tremendous uh, tremendous products that it that it also sells and services that it sells as well but equally it has this kind of other component to it which which for me is is imperative because of course we 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 we're at the sharp tip of the spear and you know earlier you talked about the roles that I did with law enforcement but you know when we do work with law enforcement it's there to try to hold those to account that are actually carrying out attacks against our way of life and of course for me there is this kind of balance that I place between yes absolutely having that commercial focus but making sure that you know the work that we do has a broader impact on society and I think you know rapid 7 does that completely Uh, you you've been you know 12 years you were part of mcafee and uh, john mcafee apparently killed himself in the prison and as someone who has been part of mcafee and has worked closely with him how dangerous is the world of cyber security and maybe share your side of the story of john's life and death if possible well you know i i, I can't talk to john honestly you, you know it's not something that i that, that i kind of feel like i i could talk to but I mean is is cybersecurity dangerous? I I I mean look it 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 can get it can get um I mean it can get worrying I think when you think about you know the crimes that are carried out and conducted through digital means I mean like like I said like there's you know m- most crime today has a digital component to it and so I mean I think look it's just something that you that you've got to do I I just feel like it's something as cybersecurity professionals anything that we can do to help and support 
our public sector partners in a true partnership to hold those to account that are trying to disrupt our way of life. I think we, we just have to do that. And, you know, like I've always, I've always been involved with security industries and security communities. I mean, I'm, I'm with the Cloud Security Alliance today. I was with the ISSA for years. You know, I ran mentoring programs. And today, like, you know, I run teams that, that understand what nation states are doing when they try to steal money from us, try to disrupt our way of life, try to hold hospitals ransom. And for me, it's important for us to try to give back to the society because we are the ones that are, you know, with law enforcement, we, we're very much on those front lines. We actually see these attacks in real time. So anything that we can do to help create a safer society, it's something that I'm going to always try to do. Um, and, and, and for me, the, the, the thing that I enjoy the most, quite frankly, is, is, you know, I'll go to a school at least once a quarter and I'll talk to kids about getting into the industry as well. And, you know, it's, it's great to see that. And th there, are, there are people that I've spoken to over the years that are now in the industry. And uh, I, I'm really happy that I've in some small way helped try to kind of hopefully inspire them to get into this industry. Because it is, my, my son wants to be a footballer. And he said to me, you know, Dad, um, and for your for the American audience, it's soccer, right? But um, he says to me, Dad, you know, I want to be a footballer, but if I'm not going to be a footballer, I'm going to go into cyber. And I said, you've got it wrong way around, son. I said, this is way more exciting than playing football, honestly. I said, like, if you want to be a rock star, then fair enough, right? I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. But this is, it's such an incredibly exciting and, and rich industry of, you know, tremendous people putting hours and hours and hours to make themselves better, <clears throat> doing everything they can to protect the world effectively is what we're trying to do. And um, I would encourage anybody listening to this, like if you are, if you're at a crossroads and not knowing what to do, just look at this industry, look at this as a career. It is, I'm so happy I've decided to, like, I, I went down this path and uh, it's so incredibly rewarding and uh, it's really exciting as well. Right. Yeah, there, there are a lot of people actually who bring down social media, especially Facebook and, and possibly rightfully so because of maybe the Cambridge Analytica and, you know, the way they are using the data. But but the other side, like you rightfully pointed out, you know, if not for social network, I think there is no way we would have been in the world that we are today, you know, where we can freely interact with anyone, you know, create relationships, you know, create businesses and Internet itself, I think is is one of the biggest teacher. I mean, you, know, you could be sitting in an urban place or a rural place if you have internet and your desire and intent you have these MOOCs massive open online courses education which is freely available so the only thing that stops one is possibly the desire and intent uh, uh, now uh, uh, my last question to you, you know, so Yuval Noah Harari has written a book on, and he says that humans are now hackable because of the technology, because we have these, you know, brain computer <laughs> interface, virtual reality devices, artificial intelligence, deep fakes, you know, how things are being used to earlier, just being manipulated through social media. Right now, it's getting more and more, uh, you know, I mean, uh, potent. Now, you ha had written a white paper titled the hacking the human operating system so would you like to paint a picture on how do you see the next 10 years the role of cyber cyber security and uh, and if we are not aware 
of our data and our privacy and our security how do you think organizations and individuals are, are going to get manipulated you know i i'm going to say humans have always been hackable like let's not kid ourselves there are you know misinformation is not new misinformation has been happening for decades we only have to look at you know 1930s germany to see how social engineering happened on an industrial scale the 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 reality is is that the means of digital means that actually the ability to be able to influence has become quicker faster and more automated so we as human be and like if i'd encourage anybody to read the book by robert caldini called um influence and he talks about the six levers that 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 are used to influence human beings and subconscious levers by the way so the suggestion that actually you know social networks have created an environment in which people are now hackable whether as they weren't before i i think is ludicrous but the next 10 years well look i'm going to try to paint a really positive picture we live in a world today in which it is it is frictionless and we live in a frictionless society in which you know, i can i can start a business i can hook up with an old uh you know person i used to go to school with 20 years ago <laughs> or i can book a flight with you know in less than sort of 3 minutes i mean it literally has become such a phenomenal environment and i think this frictionless society will continue such that life is and will become easier but the direction and what it's going to look like in 10 years i would say is down to you Eddie and down to your audience and down to the people on this world we can take a left turn and live in a society in which criminals have more information about who we are what we are and what we do and not just criminals but like commercial companies and billionaires have more understanding about us than what we about us right they know about our intent based upon the data that they have about us and that to me is not a world i want to live in like anybody that's seen you know kind of sci-fi movies such as blade runner will understand that you don't want to live in a world in which you know billboards change based upon when we walk by them right that's not a world we want or we can live in a world in which our private thoughts are our private thoughts but we use technology to help enable and further us as a society and that can only be done with your help if you want a society in which your car isn't going to be holding you hostage before it takes your wife to the hospital because you know the baby is coming and you've got to pay 20 bitcoins to get to the hospital well guess what that comes down to you the decisions that you make the questions that you ask and what you demand of the people that you give your money to and your data to that's up to us and i'd like to think you know with people like yourself and people like your audience that we'll take that right hand turn and we'll live in that society in which technology will enable us and won't leave whole sections of society behind. And so I I'm excited what the future holds. I'm really happy to be in this industry whereby we can really help shape this future. So yeah, like I said, it's up to you. The future is down to you. 
Lovely. Thank you. Thank you for taking time, being part of the podcast and sharing your insights. Yes, we're living in an exciting uh, period of time in human history. You know, for the first time, I think you could be sitting any point of, I mean, place in, in the entire world. But if you have a desire and intent and internet connection, uh, you can, you know, build businesses and do some really, really cool things. And, and, and you rightfully pointed out, I think it really depends upon us we need to be more aware educate ourselves on on a data privacy and security and be safe because you mentioned that you know we have let the fox in the hen house and yeah that is itself dangerous but yes i hope that we are more aware and you know we create a better future together so really appreciate you taking time and being part of the podcast and to my listeners if you like what you see in here then please press the subscribe button and until next time see you guys bye thank you i really appreciate this sir. Pleasure, thank you.